will tell you to open your book or your Bible to the book of Colossians. If you have your copy of God's Word, invite you to go there. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 7 tonight. Uh, we'll wrap up our series here uh, this evening and we'll uh, look to the summer here soon and the different things we have planned for that. So Colossians chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse number 7. If you guys would stand with me, I want to pay honor to the reading of God's Word. Uh, the title for tonight's sermon is Farewell from Colossae. So uh, with that in mind, Colossians chapter 4, this is God's Word. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you, those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. This is God's word, and we praise him for keeping it for us. Let's pray together this evening. Father, we come before you, our eyes and minds fixed on the end of this particular letter, uh, laboring through it over the past many weeks. We've sought to understand it and now bring it to a conclusion amongst us tonight. And I just ask that you would help us to be able to understand and value Remember the importance of this particular book. We know that it is only one book in a collection of 65 other books, God. And we know it has value as being your inspired and inerrant and infallible word. So we ask that you would help us to see that well. We think of our brothers and sisters all over this city tonight. We think of our brothers and sisters who are hurting, some experiencing damage and destruction last night. Think of the people in Ozark who have been affected by the storms that passed through last night. And we ask that you would watch over them. We ask that the churches in Ozark might be able to reach out to them. Think of First Baptist Ozark. Think of Sunrise Baptist Church there in Ozark as well. That they might be up to the task of helping those in their city who are hurting. Thank you for their faithfulness to preach your gospel. Thank you for their desire to love their city well. 
And then, Father, again, we ask tonight that you would watch over us as we endeavor to understand your word. May we never take it for granted that we get to gather together and read it, study it, discuss it, and learn from it. May you burn it into our hearts so that we walk with it. It walks with us wherever we go. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, saying goodbye is is never easy. Um, some of us will say goodbye for a season. Forgive me, dad joke here. Literally, some of you for the summer or for an exp- extended period of time. Um, saying goodbye is never easy. It's never fun. We don't enjoy it. with Jess, and we spent uh, the two summers that we were dating before we got engaged apart. One, uh, I was in Dallas and she was in Michigan. The next summer, I got to move a little bit closer, and I was in Iowa while she was in Michigan. And those were never fun times to have to say goodbye to someone, especially the person you loved and wanted to spend the rest of your life with. I'm pretty sure now Jess would be pretty fine with me going away for an extended period of time, long distance. But, maybe not, but saying goodbye, whether it's through writing or through um, face-to-face or over the phone, is never easy. You can feel that as you read the end of Paul's letters to the Colossians. He's not with them, but you can feel from the way that he talks about and to and what's coming their way and his desire for the Colossians, you can feel that he honestly, at some level, even at the end of his writing, doesn't want to say goodbye. We know that Paul has a deep-seated affection for the Colossian church. We talked about this way back when we first started uh, walking through this particular book, and we we know that the Apostle Paul wanted to go and see them. He had never visited them, but he had a deep affection for them. And tonight, as he says goodbye or concludes his letter, we will unpack, if you will, um, what the intentions are here. But I also, really honestly, if I'm being honest, want to do two things tonight with our sermon. One, I want us to see what the Apostle Paul is saying here as he concludes the letter. But two, I want to remind us, and I'm going to just like fall all over that bottle of water there. want to remind us of why we study this book and what are maybe some key takeaways for us. A lot of times we get to the end of a book, it's anticlimactic, here's Paul with a laundry list of people, and we go, okay, great. And we forget, hey, we've, we've spent like 18, 20 weeks in this book. There might be some things that we might want to remember as we finish. Maybe not, but for me, there are a few key takeaways that I think will be helpful for us. So first, let's start with some concluding remarks. Look here, if you will, at verse number seven and following. The Paul is going, like I said, to go through a laundry list of names. And at the end of this book, he's letting the people know that there are people who are going to come and care for the Colossian church. Think of Tychicus and Onesimus, these two faithful brothers. What, are, what purpose are they uh, fulfilling? 
He says uh, Tychicus is going to bring the news about the Apostle Paul. No doubt the Colossians wanted to know what is going on with Paul. Where is he? How is he doing? And Onesimus is going to come with Tychicus, and they will make known to you all the things which are happening here, but they're also going to care for you. I'm sending him to you for this purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. Here's a guy who is in chains, in prison, and not in like a luxury prison, mind you. You got to remember, first century prisons are pretty much holes that are dug out of the side of a hill. Like they're they're cold, they're wet, there are a lot of bugs because uh, they're in the side of a hill. Um, in case you didn't know where bugs are, um, in the ground, it's not exactly a luxury resort. And here, the apostle Paul tells the Colossians he's sending two brothers that they may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. They're experiencing all this false teaching, all of this false doctrine, all of the different challenges that face the Colossians, and the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to send people to help you. Your deep-seated care. And he has brothers that are going to come to see them, but also he wants to put their minds at ease about his current status. Look at verse number 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision and prove to be a comfort to me. What we learn here at the end of this letter is a, a, a few things. One, there are people with Paul. He's not alone. And, and they're comforting him at some level. Now, what level that might be in a prison, we're not sure of. But what's ironic about this is the verse 10 where he says, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. This is a big step for the Apostle Paul. This was a point of contention. Here, the Apostle Paul reminds the Colossians that they should receive this brother Mark if he should come to you. So we know that there are people who are coming to the Colossians. We know that there are people with Paul. But I love verses 12 and 13 for this particular reason. The Apostle Paul, as he brings this letter to a conclusion, brings up the man Epaphras. He says, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you, and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Here's what the Apostle Paul does as he brings this letter to a conclusion. He praises the pastor that is faithfully serving he wants to remind the Colossians of Epaphras, this one who had brought the gospel to Colossae, the one that had been instrumental in 
starting the church there, the one who had invested his time, his energy, no doubt probably his money and his life. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Epaphras had gone to see the Apostle Paul, no doubt to get help in how to deal with the different things that were facing them in the church. And even while he's there, the Apostle Paul takes note of his fervent prayers for the Colossians, which begs the question of how deeply invested a person can be in their church, apparently to the point where they are so consumed with the people there that they make it their regular practice to be laboring fervently for them in prayer. would ask you tonight, if I were to hand you one of these cards that was blank, and up at the top I had written on that sheet, people you are fervently praying for, not people who you are supposed to be praying for, not people who you have told you would pray for them. Not even people that it might be cool if you were to one day pray for them. If I were to ask, who are you in the regular habit of laboring fervently in prayer for and ask you to, to just write their name? To be an encouragement to them, not to an opportunity for you to be prideful or for us to cast judgment on you, but merely that they might be encouraged to know that their name is on your prayer sheet and it isn't just a name that's occasionally thought of. Who would be on that list? Lord, if I'm honest, I, I don't know that my list would be that deep. And furthermore, I thought that on the week that we would conclude this letter, I would get away from this letter in the sense of it's the concluding remarks how convicting can it be but even here I'm reminded here's a faithful pastor who's laboring fervently and he's going to work he's, but he's not going to work like he's not getting in a car and, and, and driving across town to sit in his study and write sermons He's not in his study alone reading books, trying to figure out how to preach and how to minister. He's not watching the greatest and latest and greatest sermons from the latest and greatest preachers on the latest and greatest topics. We could say it this way. Epaphras takes a workmanlike attitude, grabs his lunch pail, heads into his prayer closet, and goes to work there. Beloved, how many of us get up in the morning or at some point in our day and whether literally, figuratively or mentally put ourselves in our prayer closet to go to work praying for the people who we go to church with, praying for the people that are in our small group, praying for our pastors or pastors praying for their people. 
Even in these concluding remarks, the Apostle Paul takes time to mention this man, Epaphras, who, let's be honest, it seems like he has a full workload in front of him. He needs to minister. He needs to go to Colossae. He's been in Laodicea. And even in Hierapolis, this brother has a packed schedule. There are people to be visited, sermons to be written, instruction to be given, counseling to be done, deacons to be listened to as they complain, church members to gripe, listen to their gripes about the music and about the different things that are coming at them, to hear the complaints about how he's not doing well enough addressing the Colossian heresy. This brother is locking himself away to pray. It was almost as if, it was almost as if, I'm sitting in, in the study this week, getting ready for this, and it's almost as if, it didn't happen, but it's almost as if the Lord audibly spoke and said, you cannot get away from this biblical principle that prayer drives the bus. Money makes the mission walk. Prayer makes the bus start. In an ever-increasing era of Give more money, come more often, serve more faithfully. Pastors are tempted to reach into areas and put pressure on their church people before ever going and praying for them. So pastors need to be the people who are regularly praying for their people. But I think the inverse is always also true. In an era of I'll come when it's comfortable for me to come. In an era of I'll give when it's comfortable for me to give. And in an era of I'll be as committed as I like what's going on at the church. Church members need to be committed to praying for their pastors. We live in an era where a pastor will stand at the desk, the holy desk, the desk that's given to the preaching and teaching of God's word, and his people haven't prayed for him, and they're wondering, why does this guy keep telling stories about his diet? Because when he preaches the Bible, everyone sits there and looks at him. When he tells stories, people laugh, and they keep coming back. Here's the problem that we face in the American culture. We need more Epaphrases. We need more men who are on fire from God. Men who are committed to praying their people hot as well as themselves. But God help the church that has a pastor that tries to pray himself hot, preach himself empty, pray his members hot, teach them full, only to stand in a desk and serve a people who do not care to pray for their pastors. You say, you get all of that from closing yeah i do because this brother is the one who brought it to town this brother is the one who who has got the colossians as his responsibility we might be tempted to think well this is what epaphras has done he started this church Brothers and sisters, let me remind you tonight 
that there is no pastor who stands in any desk around this country who is not assigned to that particular desk by God. Epaphras may have gone and planted this church, but Epaphras has been assigned by the Almighty to be their pastor. God has brought the increase to Colossae, but God has also assigned Epaphras to this task. Epaphras is passionate, for I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Then the Apostle Paul closes with some greetings. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in this house. One of the things that struck me once again as I was reading this is how interconnected the church really is, both locally and globally. All of these brothers, Luke, Demas, Nymphus, are the people who are greeting them, meaning that they're thinking of them, which begs this question. We should always look at the New Testament and understand that it is often reminding us that people are the greatest asset to the New Testament church. And in fact, without people, the New Testament church does not exist. This is a great transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, where the house of God is pictured as the tabernacle. You can read about the intricacies of that in the latter part of Exodus. And a shift takes place to where God's people are where he resides, and where he resides is God's people gathered collectively together. It would be worth mentioning again that this building is, in essence, not a church, but rather the people who make up the congregation that meets in this building are the church seems like we forget this from time to time and it's amazing we talk an awful lot in christian circles about the lack of community that exists and we talk about it time and time again to our detriment because we forget that collectively together we constitute and make up the local church which means then that it's important and necessary for us to frequently gather together Hebrews 10, 24 through 27 makes this explicitly clear that we need to gather together regularly and often and at times not even in a church building. Hebrews 10, 24 through 27 pushes past the idea of just meeting together for regular worship. It's talking about regularly meeting together as Christ followers. So, The question becomes tonight as we bring this to a close, do you understand the importance that you as a Christian play to the success of your church? That when you're not here, people miss you, literally miss you, and spiritually miss you. Literally in the sense that we like to spend time with you, and spiritually in the sense of your contribution helps to edify the saints around you. 
and say, how come you keep belaboring this point? Because I think as a society that is tempted to believe that we can do anything and everything online, if we're not careful, we will eventually drive people out of the local church into their own homes and devalue the importance of the local church. So when you wake up late, and I don't mean like you woke up and you're supposed to be here for small groups at 945 and you woke up at 950. That's late. When you woke up at nine o'clock and you don't have two hours to get ready and make sure that your hair is in every right spot and everything looks perfect. And you're like, well, I can stay home and do it from here. I would just encourage you to rethink that policy. To recognize that when you're not here, people hurt. Hopefully, at some level, at the heart level, right, we desire the people to be around us. And if you don't, that's a heart level issue that has to be worked out with the Lord. But also we hurt spiritually because your input and your fellowship is necessary for the edification of the saints. We don't often think in those terms. And then the other question is, do you care about others in a deep way that desires to see them grow into the person that God designed them to be? That would require you to notice or to give a rip when your friends don't come. It would require you to not allow your friendships to be based on genuine shared likes and more on the person and work of Jesus Christ. You say, are we having an attendance problem? No. It's not about numbers. It's about people. You hear people say this all the time. But anytime somebody makes a comment about people being gone, we assume the pastor's saying, well, we've seen a drop in attendance. We haven't. I'm just merely pointing out to us in the good times and the bad times that your friends not being here is more about their spiritual condition than me needing to meet some sort of imaginary quota. I can assure you there is no quota. And I'm not like people who are like, we don't have a quota, but I'm going to write you a ticket because we've got to raise revenue for the city. There is no quota here. The genuine care and desire for the well-being of other people should drive us to care when they're not here. And when it doesn't, we have to ask ourselves, what are we really coming to church for? To be entertained? Oh, David, do a dance. Tell some funny jokes. Have a great illustration. Feed me. I am not a zookeeper in charge of feeding a bunch of animals so that they're satisfied and don't attack me. That's not the role of a shepherd in the New Testament. A shepherd cares for his sheep, which means he takes them to places where they can eat. The Bible. He cares for them when they hurt, sometimes by rubbing ointment, a, a, a salve into a wound that soothes and heals. And sometimes pouring salt into a wound that burns, is uncomfortable, maybe painful, but is necessary to clean. Which means he uses his rod to comfort his sheep and protect them with his staff. 
a rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23 is a perfect illustration of what a local New Testament pastor should be as, as a shepherd. It means from time to time, I'm going to take out the whacking stick and whack false theology, false doctrine, false ideology. But a shepherd can only care so much for the sheep. Especially as the sheep pen gets bigger, which we see happening around here. The sheep gets bigger. I like that the sheep pen's getting bigger. But it means that the other sheep have to help the shepherd make sure that he's staying on top of all the sheep. I don't know how that works out in a real like farming world, but that's a New Testament illustration here. So those are the concluding remarks. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is also read also in the church of Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. So I would say to you, as we get ready to talk about the key takeaways, beloved, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. You've been encouraged and exhorted by this letter, it's time to not just be hearers of the word of Jesus, but to be doers. With that, we, we transition tonight to our final point, the key takeaways. As we reflect on our time together in the book of Colossians, I think it's worth remembering a few of the things that Paul has made such of important level in this book. You could say he's highlighted them, he's put them in bold type. And so in no particular order, I've got five. That'll be quick. All of life should be centered on Christ. If you remember the theme word that we chose as we started this series, we called it steady. To steadily be building our lives on Christ. And the book of Colossians exhorts us to understand that all of life should be centered on Christ. Number two, Christ is fully God, or as R.C. Sproul would say, truly God. And should be worshipped on account of this. Make no mistake, the Apostle Paul confirms what the Gospel writers write. Jesus Christ is fully and truly God. We cannot forget this key, important doctrine for our lives. It changes everything. I was listening to a podcast on the way into work today talking about Orthodox Judaism. Uh, you know of the shooting that took place in San Diego here recently and the rise in Orthodox Judaism. And one of the things that was being discussed in the podcast was the fact that there uh, inside of Orthodox Judaism was uh, one that rose up to claim to be Christ. He has since passed away. And the claim from inside of that Orthodox camp is that one day he will reappear. Beloved, he won't. He's dead. The one who has died and risen for our sins to be our sinless sacrifices, Jesus Christ of the New Testament and the Apostle Paul confirms this for us and argues that for us inside of this book. Number three, Christ is Lord over all the world and everything in it and everything on it, under it, by it, through it. Whatever preposition you would like to pull from the list, Christ is supremely over it all. This is 
folded into number two, that he's fully God. And as being fully God is Lord over all the world. Which means that he's Lord over our lives. Especially, he will be Lord over the lives of all people. Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But also... He is Lord now presently to those who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. He is the Lord. And so number four, Christians should worship the one who is Lord over their lives. We should regularly worship, daily worship the one who is Lord over our lives. To understand that God the Father sends God the Son and God the Son submits to God the Father. And in coming to this earth lays down his life as a sinless substitute on our behalf, in my place condemned he stood, was killed, was buried, and rose again. And we say killed, but he also laid down his life. So just remember the the two thieves on the cross. One says, if you're really God, save yourself. The other says, can't you see who this man is? for you is to remember him and tell you that he goes into a borrowed tomb he doesn't need to go into a real tomb or a fake tomb but he doesn't need to go into his own tomb he needs to go into a borrowed tomb because he's not staying there we could call it a temporary living arrangement because he had business to take care of three days later he took care of that business and moved out of that temporary living arrangement of the grave because he defeated death hell sin and the grave and he's reigning and ruling and he sent the holy spirit john 20 tells us that he sent the spirit to be our comforter he spent this the the spirit to be the one who will help us uh you want to know when the holy spirit comes it comes in john 20 and then formally and functionally in acts chapter 2 so where does all of this lead us i think to number five The Christian should live out what it means to be a Christ follower in every sphere of life and look for opportunity to share Christ in all those spheres. Doesn't matter what the label is that you find yourself in, employee, boss, husband, wife, father, son. Doesn't matter what role you find yourself in, the Christian should look for opportunities to live for Christ and share about him. The book of Colossians teaches us nothing less is to be a robust Christ follower. A passionate and robust one. And to love talking about the one who saved our souls. The book of Colossians should push us out on mission. But in reality... It's not even necessarily the book that does this. It's taking what the book teaches us, and as it ignites that desire in our heart that is there when we come to know Christ, it is naturally not the book, but it's our love for Christ that pulls us out into the public sector looking for opportunities to share, looking for opportunities to invite, looking for opportunities to talk. It's amazing. People who never wanted to talk to anybody when they trust in Christ can't help but talk to everybody 
about the one who's daily. It's amazing. Watch that transformation take place. May it be true among all of us who claim to know Christ and be evident in the way that we live that he truly does own us in a real and literal sense. Because it's evident in the way that we 